This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast, and my guest today is Mr. Mike France. He's the co-founder and the CEO of Christopher Ward Watches. Mike, welcome. Uh, thank you, Ariel. It's great to great to be on the show for uh, the first time. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, I think that Christopher Ward, as a company, probably should have been on the show earlier, if only because Christopher Ward is one of the you know the seminal watch brands when a blog to watch was just getting started that we were working with, that we're talking about. Um, I remember being so excited about what you and the team were doing. There was so much enthusiasm. And I'll, I'll give everyone sort of like my recollection of what the brand is. And then, Mike, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what the actual history is so people can sort of understand where you're all coming from. When I sort of first learned about Christopher Ward, I think what was so interesting was, one, the total embracing of e-commerce, which was a, a rare and exotic thing at the time, meaning this was a company that was sort of designed from the ground up to sell watches online, a real focus on um, on marketing, uh, which meant that you were not just sort of this sterile website that sold timepieces, but there was some personality, um, a little bit of pizzazz. You know, you 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 cared about messaging a whole lot. And just a really wide variety of products, which which I think is important to say, have gotten so much iteratively better over the years. Now, I haven't seen some of the latest things. I hear they're very cool. But it was so nice to see sort of year after year the brand getting better before your eyes. And I think that was so cool to see especially with sort of an ocean of stayedness and, and you know, trickle-like innovation. So that's that's my summary of recollecting Christopher War when I got started. Now, Mike, tell us a little bit about how the brand got started. Um, okay. Um, um, firstly, it's very kind of you to have uh, said what you've just said. I really appreciate that because uh, I do True. hope that we've... Uh, I do, well, I do hope that we've been improving over the years. I mean, uh, as you say, the... Um, uh, we were, I mean, I suppose the, the word might be pioneers in terms of um, uh, introducing an online-only watch brand to the world um, back in 2005 um, when uh, people literally thought and said to me, uh, you'll never sell a watch uh, online. Um, but having uh, also told us when Peter Ellis, my co-founder, and I were at... Um, uh, an educational brand called Early Learning Center back in the day uh, that we'd never sell uh, uh, toys online. Um, we'd uh, managed to reasonably successfully sell climbing frames online, so we thought watches wouldn't be quite such a great challenge. Uh, but it was uh, it was the Wild West back then, and um, social media didn't really exist, uh, although we were um, very intrigued to discover, as we did, that there was a whole subterranean world of um, watch lovers um, operating uh, through blogs and through early forums. Um, well, we started to get discussed quite early on. And indeed, without that, and without the word of mouth that that produced, uh, I certainly wouldn't be uh, talking to you today. And we, we had some 
real good fortune early on when um, you know a, a Dutch chap called Hans van Hoogstraten um, decided, um, having been uh, discarded uh, by Michael uh, Sandler, who was the um, then the um, the guy who ran Timezone.com, because he Michael believed. Um, that we were paying people to to, to post about uh, uh, Christopher Ward, uh, which we were certainly not. There was a lot um, of weird paranoia back then. Mr. Sandler was not the only one, right? Yeah, that, absolutely. And so he was he was you know uh, exiting people from the site because I think the phrase was shilling, wasn't it? They, they, they were shills, uh, internet shills, uh, brands paying people to post about them. Uh, we didn't even know Time Zone existed at that point. So, um, <laughs> um, and then the Hans called us up and said, "Look, I've been—you'll—you'll uh, you'll know all about uh, the the uh, disturbance you're causing on uh, TimeZone.com." No, Hans, we don't because we've, we don't even know TimeZone.com exists. He said, "Oh well, let me tell you, I've just been thrown off because I bought one of your watches uh, on the recommendation of somebody else um, who'd uh, discovered it, uh, discovered the brand, and." Uh, uh, I think what you're trying to do is fantastic, and I'd like to set up a forum um, uh, just devoted to you guys. And we went, well, okay. Um, so Hans set up an independent forum that now has many, many, many thousands of people um, on it. Um, and that was really the, the leg up, if you like, um, and our introduction into at least being able to support ourselves in the early years with having some level of business. Because uh, certainly um, without that, uh, people wouldn't have been uh, finding the Christopher Ward website. Um, so we started um, back in the first, the first products went on sale in 2005. I mean, as I look back now, I was particularly... Um, Enamoured at the time with IWC, I thought they the right, brand right. Uh, the brand then had a very strong, clear aesthetic, um, and um, our first watches bore more than a more than a homage to um, the Portofino. It should be said, um, and uh, we were designing them ourselves. Um, I was I was um, you know having led a. Uh, fashion businesses and um, uh, an educational toy business suddenly find myself as um, chief designer of watches, knowing absolutely nothing about the design of watches. Uh, and so we inevitably, um, I suppose, um, looked at the marketplace and interpreted other people's watches. And, and I think as you look back now, I mean, our early attempts, whilst very um, valiant and valid, um, were, um, were 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 less than uh, less than I would hope we would be producing now, and um, um, although fantastic value and of decent quality, um, they were definitely in the in the homage bracket. Um, but over the and our, but our mission had been from day one and remains today that we, having discovered um, through uh, another fortuitous route, um, we'd been introduced to some of the leaders of the Swiss watch industry, both in Switzerland, but also importantly in, a in Asia. We discovered that many of the brands, including IWC at the time, it should be said, I don't know now, 
Um, but they were manufact- being manufactured, or ma- much of their um, componentry was being, manu- uh, was being manufactured in the Far East. And because we were privy to the first cost of much of these products, we were fortunate to know somebody who had been involved in the Swiss watch industry at a very uh, detailed level um, before he moved on to other pastures. We were introduced to people we would normally not have been introduced to, if ever, but certainly for a number of years. And so we were able to have shared with us by these very senior people a lot of the sort of costs involved with um, creating watches. And we we were literally staggered to discover some of the multiples that were being applied um, from first cost to uh, final consumer price. And we essentially decided that our model, internet only gave us an opportunity to have a different business model and a low cost-based business model. We decided that one of the first principles of the business would be to have much more of a normal, certainly in the UK, um, retail margin, which essentially was a three times the cost price uh, application uh, to, uh, to come up with the selling price. And that meant immediately that given the rest of the industry was operating, as it still largely does today, on a wholesale basis, it immediately gave us a selling price advantage over virtually all, indeed, I think probably all at that point of our competitors even though um, even though um, we were able to secure many of the same movements, many right. of the same, and were manufacturing uh, uh, things like cases and dials in many of the same places. Now, that's moved on over the course of the last um, 17 or 18 years. We were assembling initially in the Far East um, because we were able to access Swiss-made movements um, in the Far East at that time, as you will know, Ariel, the, um, that all changed around uh, 07, 08, um, when in the first instance, um, the Swatch Group um, desisted from supplying into Asia Swiss-made ETA movements. Um, so we were then left with the choice of do we stay and remain focused in Asia? Do we move to, let's say, Miata in terms of movements? Or do we think that um, we need to refocus and move into Switzerland and find people, partners in Switzerland who can help us um, deliver the sort of quality of watches at the price points that we uh, we become accustomed to? So um, we uh, literally um, went to Switzerland, toured Switzerland, spoke to lots of manufacturers, found one that had access to um, ETA movements. And that started, that was in 08, um, 07, 08, um, and started to assemble, um, still using Swiss-made movements, but also still using um, uh, Far Eastern uh, componentry um, so that we were still obviously within the the Swiss-made laws, if you like, or rules. Um, so a combination of places in terms of um, components. Right. And that model has continued to this day, albeit uh, having come across um, Synergy Horologer in 08-09. Jörg Bader, who owns Synergy, had a... We, we, we kind of 
came across them from somebody who we uh, employed who knew them. And we weren't completely satisfied with the quality of the Swiss um, we were working with. And we discovered in Jorg a like-minded individual who shared our passion for delivering um, high-quality watches at a hitherto unknown selling price. And um, that like-minded strategic partner, um, by 2014, uh, we had become uh, part of our business. We merged with Synergy in 2014, having spent um, four years developing um, Calibres H21, which was uh, a movement that we worked on with Synergy and delivered uh, to the world in 2014. And uh, have, uh, on the same day that we announced our um, our merge our merger with Synergy, and since that point we have been based in Maidenhead in England, but also have our own atelier in Biel in Switzerland. So we are genuinely an Anglo-Swiss brand, if you will, uh, with uh, you know roughly the same number of people in both um, in both uh, countries. Um, and what a great, what a great years, summary. Oh, there's more. <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great story. I don't, I don't wish to bore your, your listeners, but um, um, the, the truth is that with, with Synergy, um, we were introduced, Jorg's relationships with some of the finest um, manufacturers goes back, um, you know, 40, 45 years. Um, his father, indeed, was, uh, was in the watch industry. As, uh, so this is, and his son now works with us. Uh, he's our head of product, Jorg Bader Jr. Um, and one of the great advantages, uh, and this comes on to, I think, one of the, th- the key differences uh, between us and many, many other sort of um, smaller independent brands, um, is we, we, I wanted us to merge with Synergy because what we were acquiring was true expertise in watchmaking. Um, at the time, um, they had a, um, York had um, uh, a master watchmaker called Johannes Janker. Uh, Johannes was a young East German watchmaker. Arguably, uh, I mean, a very smart, I mean, you know, genius is a word that's th- <laughs> rather rather overused these days, but uh, he's probably as close to a genius as I'll ever um, get to work with. And uh, Johannes and we developed a number of modules uh, and then Calibres H21. And it was that level of expertise and also um, the access to grade one manufacturers, because wherever you work in the world, as you will know, um, there are many different layers of um, quality in terms of manufacture. And if we were really going to deliver the sort of promise that we had made to ourselves and to our customers uh, in terms of quality. Uh, we needed to be working with some of the finest manufacturers in the world. Jorg gave us access to, to these people. He has relationships going back in some cases, as I say, 35 and 40 years, personal relationships with the owners of some of the finest componentry manufacturers in the world. Um, and uh, that was a huge step forward for us, uh, which then... Um, in the mid-noughties, um, sorry, the later than that, in 2015, was enhanced by bringing on board one of, I think, the finest young watch designers that was around at the time, a chap called Adrian 
Buckman, who still is our uh, head of uh, head of design here. And um, at that point, and I think this is the point at which we last met, uh, maybe a year after Adrian joined Ariel, where uh, you know we started to really develop a signature handwriting. Uh, for Christopher Wood product that separate that was not about homage, but was taking uh, was 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 developing our own singular handwriting. Right. And over the course step. of the past, it was a big step, and uh, and it you know it it uh, it it has, I believe, I hope anyway, uh, has continued to improve and improve over time, and um, to the point now where I look at our collection, and. Um, there are obviously models that um, that outsell others, and models that I would prefer over others uh, from a personal aesthetic perspective. But I look at our collection today, and I don't see any area that I think um, isn't worthy of its place in the collection. And that probably wasn't that certainly wasn't probably true ten years ago, uh, and maybe not seven years ago. So there's been a huge amount of um, development and growth over the past sort of um, 10 years. Um, uh, and a lot of that is to do with um, with Synergy, our merger with Synergy, the skills and abilities of people like Jorg, Johannes, and then uh, people like Adrian coming on board. So it's uh, it's um, it's been quite a journey as all these things are. We've made plenty of mistakes along the way. But we uh, we always try at least to keep improving, um, and um, I feel I feel that we have done done much of that. But there's a long way yet to go. We're nowhere near where we uh, we think this brand can end up. So much to impact from what you said, and while you had a lot to say, anyone out there who just started a watch brand or is thinking about it, you might want to listen to everything that Mike said again, because packed within that story are a lot of little terms or things that you'll need to do as a watch brand, such as change where your watches were first made, change the origin, uh, change how you design things, um, focus as much on, on interacting with the community as you do actually building the product. Like, maybe you didn't even know it, but you talked about so many of not only the steps, but important best practices in running a brand while you were sharing that story with me that I think it's so important because those all those things that you talked about, most brands, if they get to your size or your age, will have to do. There are really no other ways about it. So my next question for you is, do you think you'd be able to replicate what you did when you and the team first started Christopher Ward today? And my theory is you might say no. I know that I probably couldn't replicate a blog <laughs> to watch today. Um, but yeah. I think it's important to discuss how a lot of times business success is, as some people say, striking while the iron's hot. It's kind of cheesy and cliche. But it's true that you know there's, there needs to be a certain set of circumstances, uh, a scenario in the market, if you will, that, that makes you fortunate to have the idea that you have at the time that you have it yeah i agree i think timing is is uh, is everything really um and you're quite right uh, right now the set of circumstances uh that we all find ourselves in that the watch industry finds itself in would lead to it doesn't mean we couldn't establish another watch brand but it would go um through a different route i mean the, the world is a very different world in uh, in 2023 than it was in um, in 2004 or five. Um, so no, I, I, we would we would not 
go the same route, I suspect. Um, in many ways, it's a lot easier these days to uh, establish a watch brand. Um, and I'm not all, and I, but but, uh, but I think in that as well, there's a, there are some lessons. Um, I, if you and I wanted to set up a watch brand um, now, Ariel, you know, we would simply, we could do it very simply because we would uh, hop on a plane probably to Switzerland and we'd go and see a company like, like Rowenta. Um, you know, and, and essentially they're a turnkey. And as long as we had a decent idea for the sort of watches and the positioning of the watches that we wanted, they could and do the everything budget. for and the budget. They could they could do almost everything. They would do everything for us. They'd design the watches for us. They'd manufacture the watches for us. The whole king caboodle. We were, we might uh, we might be a bit of a marketing front because you and I'd be smart enough to work out where the uh, where the marketing pound should be spent and what proposition we wanted to communicate. But essentially, it's relatively straightforward to set up a brand. And of course, I think that's both uh, wonderful, but I also also think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's worthy of some thought as well because it's given birth to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of micro brands. Um, and I think there are some fantastic designs knocking about in the world of micro brands, beautiful, wonderful aesthetics. But what does concern me a little is that unless some of these micro brands do what we ended up doing, which was trying to get genuine watchmaking expertise into the business and into the company, then what you are really is 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 a front you're you're a, you're a, you're a branding of it, uh, an aesthetics business and that may be absolutely valid but for me um the journey that we're on is 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 and have been on is 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 a bit deeper than that and it's sometimes harder but it's about creating something more original and of greater long-term value. Can, can I offer maybe uh, yeah. uh, some perspective here? So, Please do. You were talking about sort of being shocked a little bit as to some of the sort of cost multiples that, you know, some of the Richemont brands, for example, were charging uh, when you started understanding a little bit about the cost of manufacturing. And I think one of the important things to distinguish is, is this. Prior to the internet era, in the 1990s and sort of early 2000s, yes, it was internet era, but it was still pretty niche. When you mm. bought a watch, an expensive watch, what you were buying was a luxury object. It was mm. about, mm. look what I can afford. Omega benefited very much from this at the turn of the century in the early 2000s mm. and late 90s when they just kept increasing their price point and selling more. And they're like, oh my gosh, we've, we, we've sort of <laughs> had the Dom Perignon effect uh, hit us where people think that we're a better product because we're charging more. And this was mm -hmm. during an era with a very strong middle class. They're mostly gone now where people were very excited to show off what they could afford. It was less about the thing and more about the idea that I can afford luxury. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. things are a little bit different now. That audience still exists, but what the internet mm -hmm. did is it created a conversation around the watch appreciation hobby. Mm. What became important wasn't I'm wearing a luxury item, but it's I'm wearing an interesting watch, a good mm. watch, mm. a rare watch, a historic watch, a weird watch, a crazy watch. Whatever it was, is it was less about what it cost and more about what it looked like, how it was designed, who made it, 
why it was made, all the stories that you and I, you know, uh, of course, love about watches and yeah. really probably what gets us involved. But it's the conversation. So you were lucky, in my opinion, for being right there as the watch industry was shifting mm. from primarily selling to people buying luxury to people buying watches. And in many instances, for the first time, wanting the highest quality item at the lowest price, which would have been a little bit weird for a, for sort of a, a middle income person wanting to buy the Cartier because the Cartier name says something. For them, they don't want something which is just as good at a lower price with a different name. It's the Cartier name they want. But yeah, in the yeah. watch sphere, you have a lot less of that and a lot more of, I want something about how it's made or what it looks like or the materials or something other than the name, right? I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, it, we characterize it as this move from ex, the people being interested only in the extrinsic value of, of a watch uh, towards the intrinsic value of watches. And you, it, it was the bet we made in some regards that, um, although I'm not entirely sure we uh, we it was as well coined. I mean, the passage of time leads us to uh, to embellish our, uh, our our brilliance in this matter. <laughs> but uh, um, we did have a sense, and I had a sense about this when we were um, with Early Learning Centre, that uh, the internet was beginning to offer information to people where they could dig deeper into all sorts of um, avenues and products and industries that was never never uh, available to them and this constituency of people which i still is still not i don't think the greatest component part of those who buy watches today by the way are you might disagree with that but i still think there are loads of extrinsics out there yeah who still are purchasing watches because you know, uh, George Clooney's got one or, you know, or, or um, it, it's there says, are. But yeah. wouldn't you agree that the watch nerd community is far more responsible for mainstream tastes than they were in the 90s? Oh, completely. in the 90s, it was marketing, marketing, marketing. Now, if a bunch of nerds are into a brand, there's there's a not so off chance that the mainstream will be into that, not even really realizing why the nerds are into it. But it's sort of like with cars. Oh, with all the car guys like Ferrari, it must yeah. be good. We must we must also be into it. No, I completely agree. They they the the influence of the community is enormous, and the influence of the community on on the way brands think about what they're doing is enormous as well. So yeah, it has changed. But I still I still think the majority of people there's there's a, there's a sort of a, a circle, isn't there? I mean, lots of people who are new into mechanical watches who are curious minded enough. And what we find is that there are certain characteristics uh, that you can attach to people who are, are more likely to purchase a Christopher Ward watch, for instance, and they tend to be uh, quite curious minded individuals. And therefore they will, they will do more research uh, before they commit, especially to a brand that they may never have heard of, like Christopher Ward, that is only available on the internet, that they can't go into a store and put on their wrist before they buy. So they do their research, and they do their research uh, largely online, but obviously taking account this huge number of people who are um, you know, quite expert themselves uh, in terms of understanding about watches, whether that be... People like yourself, you know, the you know your part, your you you know, people, you and your company have for many years been part of that 
circle of, uh, of knowledge whereby people discover brands like us through going onto your blogs, going onto other blogs. Yeah, we're a discovery engine. You yeah. come to us to learn about the brands you know and to learn about other brands you want to know about. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 always been a part of my thing. I have the desire to expose people to as many watches as possible. I do not care what watch people buy as long as they're into watches. What they gravitate to is going to be about taste, going to be yeah. about who they are. I don't care. I just want to expose them to as much as possible. Well, and, 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 you know, we're very thankful for that. But it, it, you're right. And there are certain industries that lend itself, and watches is one of them. Interestingly, you know, cars is another. Um, um, the item, I don't know if you know, but we have a disproportionate number of people who are uh, in the IT world, tech, yeah, who are our customers. Okay, um, interesting. Uh, and, but these are, they tend to be, I mean, you could argue a bit more nerdish, but they tend to be um, more curious-minded individuals. Yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not as, uh, they're, they're as likely to be, or they are going to be swayed by these intrinsic values. The, sto the stories that they're interested in are not just that this was the first watch on the moon, <laughs> but there, there, is a, there is a richer, deeper story behind how this watch came and how this brand came into being. And the internet has delivered that. And it's, you know, it, it's delivered information to people that just wasn't there previously, which, as you rightly say, was, was you know, was fed to, the information was, generic marketing-led PR puff previously. And people can now see behind that increasingly. And that we, we, we expected and thought that that, that that constituency would grow and grow and grow as the internet grew and grew and grew. And I don't see, I think that's A, what's happened. And I don't think, but I still don't think it's anywhere near the, the journey being complete in that regard yet. And there are a lot of we we describe we don't describe people in the new uh, in the normal socio demographic way. Uh, we have characterised people actually. It's um, we have an aviary of people: um, um, owls, peacocks, um, herons, cuckoos, etc. Um, fun names. They are fun names, but but you know a peacock is clearly somebody. Uh, and there's a great there's a great story. Um, we 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 were doing some focus groups um, probably five or six years ago about the brand, trying to you know get inside what people thought about some of the stuff we were doing. And we split the split the focus groups into the various categories that we had, and we put together a group of um, peacocks. And these were people who largely city boys. Um, in terms of, uh, they were all, uh, we, all these focus groups were conducted in the UK. Um, uh, city boys working in the city of London. All of them had uh, spent a lot of money on watches. Um, virtually none of them knew much more about the watch than how much it cost and how impressed some of their colleagues were going to be in wearing it. But we, we didn't, the moderator didn't, um, didn't say who the work was for until about halfway through the uh, the session, about an hour session. And he said, you know, by the way, behind the glass, uh, you know, Mike Franz, the CEO of this company we're talking about, is uh, is watching this. He'll come in and talk to you later. Anyway, uh, he eventually, uh, having shown them a load of stuff and had a really interesting discussion with them, 
said, uh, right, I'll tell you now, the, the brand that we're here to talk about is a, is a brand called Christopher Ward. Have any of you heard of Christopher Ward? I mean, there were probably eight people in the group. Um, I think one of them had vaguely heard about us. Most of them were shaking their heads. No, no, no. Um, and he said, yeah, he said, um, they're, um, you know, relatively new watch brand. They, they're Swiss-made watches um, based in Maidenhead. And this guy, uh, I'll never forget him. He said, ah, hang on a second. He said, where do you say they're based? And Graham, because that was the name of the moderator, Graham said, um, oh, Maidenhead. And he said, ah, that's it. That's it. I will never, ever buy a watch from a brand that's got its head office in Maidenhead. So, <laughs> what? Uh, you know, for him, unless it was Geneva, <laughs> New York, London, uh, that was that was all he was interested in. Interesting. These were, Interesting. Yeah, not a curious-minded individual, yeah? Um, only interested in the extrinsic side of things. And still today... I, we still reckon that the peacock fraternity, and we're not we're not even interested in trying to sell to those people. One day, maybe CW watches will be cool enough for the peacocks to think they're worth having. But actually, they're not the people that we're even attempting to target. Um, you know, we're, we're, the world the world of uh, of, of premium watches um, and the scale of the market is big enough. For us, uh, we don't need a very large market share for uh, for the business to be much bigger than it is today. So we 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 choose we choose not to even attempt to market to those people. But they are a big group. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's Authenticity Guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an Authenticity Guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase, because everyone deserves real. Yeah, they are a big group, but you know, I think it's been a very successful thing for a lot of brands to do, and it's kind of interesting. Brands that sell to their core demographic very, very well tend to be successful in the long run. With that said, there's always this desire from brands, and I see it at it even, even older, more expensive brands, is there's this aspirational audience they want to sell to. No matter how well they're doing, they always say to themselves, boy, we'd love it if those people wanted our watches. And, you know, uh, I, I like to use Longines, for example, as an interesting mm. um, uh, sort of take on this. Longines is a fantastic watch brand. Very successful, wonderful history. But at some point in their history, they thought in recent history, they said to themselves, wouldn't it be great if people that went to horse racing wore watches? And if you go to horse races, you realize it's sort of like a winner-take-all thing. Like it's Rolex, yeah. pretty much Rolex, right? Mm-hmm. But Lawn Jeans was just like, wow, wouldn't it be great if people that went to horse races wore our watches? And they were so invested in this idea and they spent all this money and time in, in, in the equestrian sports, and they're cool events, but I don't know if it ever really made that much of a dent. All the while, the mm. types of people who are wearing and loving 
Longines watches was not that demographic at all. Mm-hmm. And and again, uh, Longines, I love you. I'm just using this example. I know you already know this information. This isn't isn't a shock to you that not everyone going to horse races wears your stuff. But like marketing to who your actual buying demographic is takes a lot of discipline and maybe sort of like resetting your ego sometimes. Like it's a strange thing because brands they tend to want some elusive demographic that they probably should just forget about wearing their watch. Like, just respond to that. Um, a, a focus is critical. I mean, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, um, you know, stick to the knitting is um, is, is 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 a phrase that uh, uh, often appears in uh, in our uh, in our dialogue as a board here. Um, uh, having said that, um, the lifeblood of um, of any business is attracting new new customers, um, and because of our price pointing, we have a we we are particularly um, well positioned as an entry level mechanical watch brand for people just emerging into the deep rabbit hole that is uh, that is mechanical watches and watch collecting, um, which we've all <laughs> most certainly you have entered many years ago, <laughs> real, um, and therefore. It, that tends to mean, and it, it can happen at any age, but it's, let's say, typically it's happening to somebody between the ages of 25 and 35 um, when they are um, beginning to move up their professional ladder. They're beginning to notice, um, you know, that th- there are certain signals um, uh, that they want to project as well. So let's not um, underestimate the the, the, the importance of any piece of jewellery that a man wears in projecting something, even if it's projecting that I'm an independent-minded revolutionary um, that that selects this weird uh, independent brand and weird design watch. It is all, all, every time we put on a watch or any piece of jewellery or any piece of clothing, we're communicating something about ourselves. And so these, these, these younger professional people and most of our, um, most of our, Customers tend to be professionals of one sort or another. Um, they are definitely, um, int- if, if they are curious-minded, uh, we have an opportunity of, um, of, 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 of communicating to them the values inherent in our watches. Now we have a. There are there are people who are well are automatically disposed towards mechanical watches. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of on their way already, even at a young age, to becoming uh, collectors and aficionados. There are others who are probably swayable, who could go either route. They could become, they, they, you know, they could be junior peacocks and end up going down up that route where watches. Or if you can get them early enough and get them interested enough and they're curious minded enough, you can move them across from that route and bring them into the proper world of watchmaking. Now they, we call them cuckoos on the turn. <laughs> um, the, the, and they are an interesting target market for us because we think there is a, a growing number of people who are uh, who would not who would previously have gone up that straight route to peacock territory who actually you can, if you communicate and um, and speak to them and bring them into your brand in the right way at the right time, then you can attract um, more different sorts of people into the world of mechanical watch collecting. 
And that is one of the key routes that we um, go down to attract new customers because you know we're not going to be we're not going to deliver our ultimate ambitions of being a you know a large um, not a small independent watch brand but a large independent watch brand unless we're able to attract those sorts of new customers. Um, I don't believe that the core market, the 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 those who are uh, inherently interested in watchmaking. And, and I don't think that is a big enough component yet of the watch market to, to, for any brand to have a very large business. You can have a small business that's very successful, but if you want a large and successful watch brand, and we want to be ultimately a large and successful independent watch brand, I think you have to move away from just those nerds, if you will, you know, those, those, those people. Well, it's just who are the size just of the market. Yeah, exactly. It's about the yeah. number of time they're going to buy. I totally get. So here's something to think about. You may know this. It's sort of something I discovered and I found it very interesting when I thought about it and it has to do with why people buy the luxury watches that they do. Mm. And I found an interesting correlation between what you're good at in your job or the reason for like a business success mm. and the watch that you end up liking. And you were talking about sort of tech individuals and things like that. Mm. These are people who have to understand how systems work, mm. how to need to learn how to build, thing, build things leanly, not the most expensive way, but the sort of like the most hip and new way. So that's why they really like learning about how watches are made. And they're also very sympathetic to people to do cool things on a budget. Mm. Mm. And for them, success in their in their businesses has to do with being obviously very creative with engineering, um, mm -hmm. being very efficient, mm -hmm. and making something work well with not a lot of resources. So when they see a watch brand that mimics those values, they're immediately drawn to them. Someone else might have success working in a giant company. And for them, uh, they have to buy a watch from a giant old company, which is sort of just monolithic, mm -hmm. just like the success or the place that they work at. And so I find interesting parallels. Chefs, for example, chefs love beauty, mm -hmm. taste, mm -hmm. uh, atmosphere, the finest ingredients, class. Yeah. These are things you find in watches all the time. And we know that chefs love watches. People that make movies, for example, love the parts of a story, love how stories can pull emotions, mm -hmm. love how mm -hmm. stories combined with aesthetic mm -hmm. and, or also, and also tangibility. For them, there are so many things about how the mechanism and the engineering behind watches turns into all these interesting emotions that flow through you and flow through the people that see you. So for them, it's sort of the more complicated emotional experience. And so if, if you can see my point here, I'm drawing all these parallels between someone's profession and their success and the types of values that they might like uh, in a timepiece or a brand. Yeah, that, I think that's a very insightful um, um, way of looking at things. I really do. And I think uh, I hadn't thought about some of that and um, uh, or, or managed to um, coalesce it into that sort of singular thinking. But I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, and um, So from a marketing perspective, that opens up so many types mm, of messaging opportunities. Mm. Yes, you have to speak to that demographic of chefs. But mm -hmm. since you know what they value and Done. you could draw parallels to your brand or your product, mm -hmm. you could get in really good with chefs or yeah, whoever else yeah. you decide to talk to. Probably a lot of different people at the same time. Yeah, no, absolutely right. It's, uh, it's uh, intriguing. So going back to tech professionals, that is 
the type of demographic that a blog to watch really got started with, we were being heavily read um, by people that were well-to-do, uh, you know, computer programmers, various types of engineers, mm. whether they were actual coders or managers or things like that, mm. they valued cool stuff, yeah. modern technology. Uh, there was, yes, there's a humility to that culture, but they mm. like to show off just as much as anyone else. So to have a cool machine <laughs> on your wrist was a wonderful thing. And right, and like your middle-class person might not think, look at this cool machine on your wrist. But a machine uh, is something that they like to show off. And a watch, look at the popular watches today, skeletonization, more complications, focusing a, a lot on performance. Over the last 20 years, these types of things have become front and center in a way that they really hadn't been in any serious way. And in my opinion, that's related to uh, the inspiration and how much the tech professional, whether it's software, whether it's hardware, has brought to the watch industry. And I think it has been profound. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And I'm just um, thinking about, um, we have a, a number of um, groups, uh, Facebook groups who, um, you know, one of them is called Chris Ford Enthusiasts, and actually, the the, the chief moderator is a um, is a professor um, of um, of software engineering, <laughs> and you know he 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 is he's pretty typical of uh, the many thousands of um, of people in that group. Um, so you're you're absolutely right. The the they tend to understand the intrinsic value of things much more. Um, and uh, uh, look behind the obvious. Uh, they want to know about how stuff works. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, it's certainly, certainly true that we have a, we also have a, I mean, something like uh, two to 3% of our, um, of our watch buying population, Christopher Ward watch buying population are, are medical doctors, uh, which is, which has always been yep. a fascinating, uh, and the same sort of principles around that. Um, you know, exactly. yeah, so I, I think again, you're right. It's a, it's an insight that, um, uh, I think is very, very valid about, uh, the watch buying public and should determine, uh, and, and does determine to some extent the way we uh, we talk to people sometimes uh, without even knowing that we're doing it uh, in that way but you're quite right it's a, it's a deep hole so the bel canto which is your um your musical watch which people are excited about and i know people on the blog to watch team have uh, have seen and thought is very cool hmm. tell me is it is it the type of demographic that i just mentioned that's into it is that the primary buying group i'm guessing so i don't we although we haven't uh, had an opportunity to analyze in the sort of detail we ultimately will who the uh, who the customer for the bel canto is um, um what's interesting is um ge the geographic spread is interesting um for instance um, which uh i mean our biggest our biggest um market anyway uh, is uh, is the united states um so the biggest share of our sales goes to the United States and has done for some while. Um, the Bel Canto has a disproportionate um, mix in the United States, but much more interestingly, a huge following in the Far East. Um, we've always had a, a reasonable footing in the Far East, particularly in 
territories such as Singapore, uh, South Korea, Taiwan. Um, but a disproportionate number of bel cantos uh, have been um, uh, have been purchased by um, people in the Far East, which is interesting. And so I'm, I'm, we're, 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 we're going to do some more work to understand quite what that means. Um, but it's uh, it's uh, it's potentially um, you know important for us because it uh, it may uh, you know the, the the Far East market, as you will know, is is a, a very important market, and it's not been our largest by a long way. But this type of watch um, at this sort of price point uh, may be um, may be uh, something that will enable us to grow uh, at a faster rate in some of those markets. So that's that was an that's an interesting insight that we discovered. I want to talk a little bit about the feedback you mentioned doing some research and wanting to know a lot about who's buying things and why. And of course, mm. that's very smart to do. One of the most difficult things, I think, of being a watch brand in today's sort of modern connected world with blogs and social media is the feedback. And I don't care who you are, what brand you are, there's people out there saying really nice and some not so nice things about you. Mm -hmm. And you are someone who obviously has a lot of your, um, your personality, your emotions at stake. The brand is an extension of yourself. You've been doing this for so long. Naturally, it's going to you know, feel that way. What is your particular strategy with reading the feedback, obviously wanting to absorb as much information as, as you can, that's just smart business, but also developing a thick skin and knowing how not to take things personally? Because I see a lot of the younger people out there really kind of not understanding how to do this. Um, and it's interesting for you because, you know, most of your adult life, there wasn't this thing of, you know, social media comments and then boom, there was. Mm. So. It's interesting how you didn't grow up around it. Um, I'm guessing you have a mature outlook on it. Maybe they infuriate you. I don't know. But as someone who deeply cares about their brand and also listens to the community, what is your approach to the comments? Um, we're much more interested in the... I mean, it's always nice to have compliments. But genuinely, we always have been much more interested in informed criticism. There's an... I mean, you know, the, you will know this only too well. There is... A huge amount of um, uninformed criticism, um, which you know, you you just have to ignore. You know, it's it's it, it's you know, it's not going to change anything. It's 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 people speaking without real knowledge and understanding. But there are there is in the world that we operate in a huge amount of informed criticism, and if you choose not to listen to the informed criticism. I think you're missing an opportunity for continuing improving what you're doing. So we have a, um, you know, and have done. It's like it, it's not, you know, it's just been part of our DNA because um, we've been so long uh, involved with the community. Um, you know, uh, even our own forum. You know, we have, um, which was you know, as I say, established uh, back in 2005 by Hans van Hoogstraat, and now has thousands of members. You know, we although for the for the first ten years of our life, we we didn't own that forum; it was owned by Hans. You know, he eventually, I think, his wife uh, put her foot down and said, "You're spending far too much time," and he he decided to um, to 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 give it up and. Uh, he offered us the opportunity at a, a real stipend, uh, you know, to, to, to purchase the forum, uh, which we did. 
but have continued to uh, be allow it to run editorially on a completely independent basis. We never once, never once, and never will as long as I'm around, have interfered editorially or tried to prevent anybody saying whatever they want. The, the, the moderators themselves have some rules about language and all of that sort of stuff, which is appropriate. Um, but that feedback loop, just from our forum, is, and they are, I mean, these, these are people who in many ways um, own the brand. And they, 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 they've been a, a associated with the brand for so many years. They, they take it, just like I do, very personally. It is their brand. And, um, you know, they, they know more about the history of the brand than I do in some cases. I mean, they've, they've put together, for instance, the most incredible, in the watch world, uh, they've put together the biggest and most comprehensive archive of any brand that exists anywhere in the world themselves. It is quite astonishing the work that they put into it. it it's as we often use it to find out things about products we did 15 years ago. But they are um, an invaluable, absolutely invaluable source of commentary about things we do. Good, indifferent, and not so good. And they, we have regular sessions with them anyway, uh, or with with the moderators and, and sometimes um, to the broader group where we ask them to provide through surveys information. And it has led in a number of cases to um, new products or um, new versions of older products or improvements in products. You know, a very good example of um, um, something that uh, they, they influenced hugely is the in uh, September we introduced uh, a new uh, dive watch, the Trident Pro 300. Uh, and that was as a result of um, a survey, a conversation, and several and many conversations where, although we had an idea about where we wanted to go, you know, we learned from, from the community the sort of things they wanted us to do with our dive watches. And, you know, I would say two thirds of the things that they suggested uh, we thought was spot on. We delivered that into watch. It's become a huge success. And, uh, you know, and it was born of, here's how you can improve your dive watches, guys, because they are both informed about the Chris Ward brand and their potential purchases as well. So why wouldn't you want to listen to these people? Um, they're brilliant. And so, I, you know, it's, it's really the critique, the informed critique, the things that can be done better, the things that we're not doing so well, that really exercises. And it's something that the business genuinely um, is set up to, to hear. You know, so we, we you know, my co-founder, Peter Ellis, he spends half of his life, um, you know, um, it seems anyway, you know, listening to what's going on in these forums and feeding back to the business things that we're discovering, not just about product, but about things that we're not doing right in terms of service or delivery or whatever it might be. I got I got a comment here. I think, I mean, I just, because before I forget, I just have to comment here because there's, there's so much to say about this, but I want to thank you for that explanation because on the surface, I think to most people, it appears suspect that a brand would own their own forum. Isn't that going to be some way of manipulating everybody? And I think what Mike has just detailed is how, in fact, quite the opposite is true. 
maintaining your own forum is an investment, a wise investment that allows the community to have a place to have a focused conversation about your brand, reach the brand directly, get responses, share information information with one another. There's so much value to be had from just doing that that actually having to go to a, a sort of a nefarious step of, of being manipulative isn't necessary for it to, to earn you a good return. Meaning that more brands should maybe think about doing this. Some do. It's not an uncommon thing, of course. It's not like that no brands do it. But I think the Christopher Ward forum is a good example of like a very active one, maybe one of the most active brand-owned <laughs> forums that operates really as a resource for consumers. It is not a brand manipulation tool that's sort of like a bunch of marketing stuff. It's not that. It doesn't need to be. It has enough value unto itself. And I think it's so important to point that out because we still live within a mindset that's so sus suspect just sort of by the definition of you owning a, a company like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, as I say, the the it, it was established not by us at all, and we just um, we just took it on board. And all we provide is uh, is a uh, an IT support um, that allows this community to operate as they wish um, themselves. Uh, and the important thing is this um, lack of editorial involvement. Um, if you and I, I do know. I think we are reasonably unique in that, um, in that uh, we have no, and I really mean this, no editorial involvement. Um, you know, we don't express concern about things that are said. Um, you know, if, if there are, there are, there are going to be things and there are things that, say, that are said that, that, you know, sometimes we think, you know, that, that's, that's, our, that's unfair or that's wrong. Or why have they said that? Um, but we don't interfere. And, uh, and um, it, it is, these are the people who, um, who run it, they're all doing it for nothing. They're, they're not, we're, not, we're not paying them. All we're doing is providing the infrastructure um, that they can have a thriving community that is uh, not only devoted to Christopher Ward, by the way. They have uh, segments of the forum that uh, discuss other brands. And again, we are, uh, we, we, we find it. Um, I don't know. We just we just uh, we we ourselves <coughs> discuss other brands. We have a magazine, our own in-house magazine called Loop, which has grown and grown over the years, and has a sort of we produce it on a quarterly basis, and it has a um, it has a readership now of um, you know about quarter of a million people per issue, um, and um, you know we, we we will often in that uh, in in Loop magazine um, present um, competitor brands if we if we like what they're doing. <laughs> um, we'll, talk, we'll, we'll compliment them uh, and their watches, and uh, you know, people say, "What the hell are you doing that for?" And it, it's because we we genuinely think that um, you know we have a role to play. In well, the question is, why not? Well, I think that's well, the right absolutely, question. Absolutely, absolutely. But you'd be surprised how many people think it's it's mad. I'm not surprised because it's it's that's actually my 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 question. I guess my last question is we're out of time. It's been a great chat. We'll have to do another. But what is it about Christopher Ward as a company that has provided you with the mentality to be far more practical? Others would call it open-minded. I'd call it practical and pragmatic about communication about some of these policies you're talking about compared to the 
to the mainland European people, and I'm just sort of throwing them all together, the German, the Swiss, the French, none of them have in any real way that I know of done anything like this or had this mentality. They're scared to death of it. Yet they'll just say it's a cultural thing. But I still fail to see their logic. So what is it about you as a company that has provided you with that pragmatism where they, it just seems to escape them. It seems to elude them every single time they talk seriously about it. Uh, I'm not sure is the answer to to that, Ariel. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, we're a bit uh, we're a bit longer in the tooth. We're not uh, <laughs> many people. We've been around. We've uh, you know we've uh, we've run other businesses, uh, Peter and I, and um, um, maybe it's just a, a collective knowledge or viewpoint, like a maturity thing. I I think maybe. I mean, what you know. Uh, the truth is that, you know, people are, used the word earlier about in another context, but people are paranoid um, about um, information passing to competitors. Um, the reality is, um, whatever that might be, you know, they're, they're unlikely to be able to do anything about it anyway. I have this view and developed this view over, um, um, certainly over the time of Chris Ford, but but it goes beyond this uh, uh, into earlier days. One I really think that, and it, it, it is about this curiosity. Um, I think most of the people who work here are pretty curious people. I'd like to think I have a curiosity about, you know, in my own character. And I'm curious about the way things work and the way businesses are run. And it strikes me that, um, and, and, and back to this constituency of people, largely enabled by the information age that we live in, uh, which is largely due to the internet, whereby we want to know more and more and more about not just the products, but about the companies that as consumers we are so dependent upon. And I have a phrase that says, you know, one of the one of the things we try to do here, and I don't think we're there yet, by the way, I think not not fully. I think I think we've got other steps we can take. But are you familiar with the phrase the fourth wall? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, you know what, what I see Christopher Ward trying to do or want to continue to try to do even more than we have done to this point is, is take that fourth wall away. I think the real magic of the watch industry, the real beauty of the products that we're fortunate, of to, fortunate enough to be involved in isn't about hiding and creating mythology around it. It's about giving people real information, access into exactly what goes on. And therefore, openness and transparency does the opposite, in my experience, than most people in the industry think. They think it um, reduces the interest and reduces the mythology. I think it has the opposite, completely the opposite effect. The more I have learned over the years about the watch industry uh, at quite substantial levels of detail, the more interesting and magical it has become to me. And that's become something that we, as a brand and as a business, want to have always tried to do, but think increasingly is important. Uh, and we think more and more and more people are of that mindset. And so, uh, you know, I would encourage more all brands in, in our sector, in our industry, to, to, to think about the fourth wall and take it down. Um, when you know more about the, the watch industry, the better 
and more interesting it is. It really is. And uh, why, why that is, I don't know, but uh, it is. It's a wonderful way to end that even after, you know, nearly 20 years of doing this, you have a continued interest. You like to learn new things. What you discover excites you. And I'm the same way. And I'm the same way. Yeah, um, I guess. Mike, mm-hmm. we'll have to have you back again um, before we exit. Just plug whatever you want to plug. The website, any certain <laughs> accounts. Where do you want to send people's attention? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the best place to find out about us still is probably um, probably on our website, Um, All visitors are always welcome. Okay, wonderful. This has been the Superlative Podcast with the CEO and co-founder of Christopher Ward Watches, Mr. Mike France. Mike, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com.